The government's pursuit of false claims cases never takes a break. So far this year, recoveries have totaled just under $500 million, and they appear to be on pace for a full, solid year of about $2 billion. For more on the trends and some of the more remarkable settlements, we turn to attorney Jonathan Phillips, a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Mr. Phillips, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. And you have done a pretty comprehensive tracking of everything going on in whistle. Well, I should say not just whistleblower cases, but all false claims acts this year. Review what you've seen so far in terms of the pace of settlements, and it sounds like a lot more comes in in the second half of the year than the first. I think that's right. So far in 2023, it's tracking certainly what we saw in 2022 and over the last 10 to 12 years in False Claims Act recoveries. I think you're right. The latter half of the year tends to have more announced settlements, I think partly because of the close of the federal fiscal year in the fall. And so a lot of settlements often are announced around that time. So while there's you know around 500 million that have been announced in FCA recoveries to date this year, that tracks with last year when the total for the year, as you mentioned, was around two billion. And how much of this total settlement comes as a result of the government initiating action, and how much of it, you know, proportionally is caused by people on behalf of the government, relators under key TAM cases? Pretty consistently, with one exception last year, pretty consistently. Roughly 90% of monetary recoveries and False Claims Act actions come from cases in which either the government brought it itself or intervened in allegations by a, a key TAM relator. Last year was a bit of an outlier because there was one particularly large settlement in a case brought by a relator that resulted in last year, the number being over 50%. But if you look back over 10 to 12 years, on average, the government's bringing in 90% of the recoveries in cases it pursues. And is the government getting better at this? Because like in the healthcare repayment area, Medicare, Medicaid services, they have really initiated much better tools for detecting fraud in recent years, artificial intelligence and all of these kind of trends analysis across big data that they can zero in on some of these doctor rings, you know, that rig up claims and this kind of thing. So the government's getting better at it, fair to say? I think it's certainly fair to say, and the government has made no secret about it, that they are using data analytics to identify outliers in the available billing and reimbursement data across different industries. And I think there are simply more KETAMs. You know, we've had a record number of KETAMs filed every year for the last six or seven years. It just goes up and up and up. And I think not only is the government becoming better resourced in investigating and pursuing the cases. But the relators bar, the attorneys representing relators, investigating cases to find cases to bring are being better resourced and sophisticated as well. And do we have any record or any statistic on the number of key TAM relator cases brought? What proportion of them are settled in favor of the relator? Because it is no small matter to bring a key TAM case, especially if you have to hire a lawyer. You may have to lay out a lot of money, and sometimes these things can take a decade before you actually get paid if you win. So the statistic announced by the government is they decline to intervene in approximately 80% of key TAM cases. Now, after that, it becomes a little bit fuzzy because the announced statistics kind of end there and because relators have the option to dismiss a case after the government declines. You know, it's very often the case where 
a relator thinks they've got a theory of liability, the government investigates it, it doesn't pan out, and the relator says, oh, I guess I was wrong, and they drop the case. And then get fired. Uh, <laughs> well, there are laws to deal with that, uh, anti-retaliation laws, but I would say I don't think anybody would disagree that relators are settling a far lower percentage of the cases they bring compared to the cases that the government pursues. And let's talk about the industries that produce most of the False Claim Act settlements, regardless of the source or the origin. It seems to be in that whole CMS area. Fair to say? Very fair to say. Healthcare has really dominated the share of False Claims Act recoveries really for the last 20 years. Healthcare cases have made up you know, approximately 80% of recoveries over that time period, with one exception during the Obama administration when there were a number of large cases in the mortgage-backed securities space. Other than that few-year period, all of the large settlements in the aggregate, the percentage of settlements across all cases has really been made up predominantly of healthcare, pharmaceutical, medical device in sectors. And second place then would be federal contracting and contractors. Broadly defined, yes. So the paradigm of that is sort of the defense industry, the activity there, as you might expect, you know, kind of waxes and wanes with, you know, what our engagements are in the world. But really, the statute can reach anybody who does business with the government, right? So any company that sells products or provides services to the government potentially can find themselves in a False Claims Act case. And so it's not just defense, you know, any technology companies service providers, it really runs the gamut. In some cases, it's pretty mundane. You cite one recent case of a government contractor that double billed for nuts and bolts. I guess they figured nobody's counting nuts and bolts in the context of a bigger contractor, but somebody sharp-eyed was counting them. You add up enough nuts and bolts, uh, and it can be meaningful for sure. Yeah, I think it was uh, $21.8 million. So, yeah. Well, tell us about some of the other cases you feel are noteworthy because of either exotic legal ground or because of the size in the half year just passed. The legal theory that's been generating the biggest settlements has really been cases against healthcare companies under the anti-kickback statute, which is principally a criminal statute that makes it a felony to pay money and other things of value to physicians and other healthcare providers in a position to refer business that might be reimbursed by the federal health programs. That's not a new theory at all, but just by virtue of the amount of money in, involved in some of the businesses that it touches, it can result in large settlements. The other areas that the government has been particularly focused on and is focused on in bringing new cases include policing the Paycheck Protection Program that was in place during the pandemic and bringing cases against applicants for PPP loans who didn't meet criteria, right? So if you're in a profession or you don't meet other eligibility criteria for getting a loan and you misrepresent your qualifications, that's a fraud that can be policed under the False Claims Act. And the government has said, even in cases that are you know, only thousands of dollars, which pale in comparison to that other cases, they're going to devote the resources to that. Another one that is very big right now, especially in the contracting space, is using the False Claims Act to enforce compliance with cybersecurity standards. That's an issue that's been in the news for technology companies and really anybody who handles data in all kinds of different ways. And the government has announced, and we have seen this, that they will use the False Claims Act to police, especially contractors who have 
particular requirements in providing services to the government that they are meeting certain standards to protect government and sometimes private persons data. Right. In other words, if they have to have a certain control in place and somebody notices it's not really there, they just told the government it's there, then you've got a false claims act. In other words, false claims don't have to be strictly monetary. They can be regulatory. That's exactly right. And the more difficult and sophisticated cases tend to turn on compliance or non-compliance with some seemingly garden variety regulation, but the violation of which could affect the government's decision to pay. So I wonder if the recent requirements that and these will be challenged in court or maybe overturned by another administration, but the idea that government contractors have to report their climate and CO2 activities under some kind of a climate regime, someone could say, wait a minute, they said this many tons, but they didn't tell you about the grill in the patio that they use for employee picnics, all that charcoal, therefore false claim. I think it's a great point. Anytime you're making a representation to the government in connection with getting paid, the False Claims Act is potentially there. So you know, contractors in that position should take care. And you know, as we're seeing now with things like the cybersecurity cases and the PPP cases, it's not hard to imagine a near future where the government is focused on finding enforcement tools in the climate change area. And there's going to be a lot of government money paying for responses to natural disasters. We've seen cases following Hurricane Katrina, the BP oil spill, where the False Claims Act was used in those settings. And I think you're exactly right. We can expect it in the climate space as well. Attorney Jonathan Phillips is a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his mid-year summary at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor 
and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. 
I begin to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine.
And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.